that we can grow and be strengthened and matured and uh, that there would be uh, a, uh, a likening of ourselves to become more and more like You each and every day, to hold closer to the things that this book tells us, to be more yielded and obedient to the prodding and the leading of Your Holy Spirit in our hearts as we uh, seek to live a life that is pleasing to You. Help us not to be a reproach or to cause any type of embarrassment or cause someone to, to look at our lives and to be turned off to the things of the Lord. May we have a great testimony. And may there be joy in our hearts. May there be uh, something that uh, we can be a light to this dark world in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Second Peter, chapter number 1. A few weeks ago, <clears throat> I, um, I spent one whole Wednesday night uh, instructing on how we uh, come up with biblical doctrine. What are some of the rules that we go by? Uh, to establish doctrine from Scripture. And, um, and then we taught on uh, repentance, and we've been dealing with some of the problem Scriptures or uh, Scriptures that sometimes are being misused or misinterpreted, misapplied in some cases, and we've uh, got quite a few more of those to deal with. It started off as about an eight or ten lesson uh, series, and the more we get into it, the more we see there are other areas that need to be addressed and dealt with and Throughout the course of this year, we're going to be looking at even more of those. And uh, But I wanted to take an evening tonight because the Bible teaches quite a bit uh, and warns us quite a bit about false teachers. And we've spent a good deal of time this year and a little bit of last year dealing with the Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation and some of the false teachers that are out there. But uh, in, in thinking about that, and we've talked about how we are to... Uh, try the spirits, the Bible says, uh, that we're to be able to be discerning. It talks about the Bereans uh, who search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. We've talked to you about uh, being, being careful of false teachers, and I thought it would help us tonight to take a few moments to look at some scriptural things about uh, not only how do we, how do we find out uh, who the false teachers are. What is it that gives us that discernment or that judgment to know uh, what the false teachers are? And uh, it's one thing for us to warn you about false teachers. It's another thing for you to be able to tell who they are. Uh, and so we're going to take some time tonight uh, from Scripture to look at some things. Um, and hopefully it will be a help to us. Uh, throughout Scripture, um, Satan has used a couple of tactics uh, and it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And uh, one of the things that he does is um, to try to interject um, his own truth. He'll use some truth, and then he'll try to interject some of his own truth into it, or some of his own um, uh, teaching or doctrine into it, and to uh, kind of water down, if you will, uh, a lot of the false teachers that, came about, especially like in Old Testament times, and even in the New Testament, the Bible says, and I think I, I made mention of it Sunday, um, that the Bible says that they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. And one of the problems with that is a lot of times they look just like the sheep. And if we're not careful, we will look to them and say, well, there's a, a solid Christian um, you know, that you know we, we seem to have a, a connection with. There's a good personality that we like, and they seem to teach truth, 
And that's where Satan oftentimes will get us in the false teacher department is they will have some truth that they will teach. And then they will begin to interject their own truth or the truth that, that Satan uh, tries to get into. And uh, they'll present their teaching as uh, the Word of the Lord. That This is what God has said. And we're living in a day where uh, more and more the Bible is being... Um, de-emphasized. It is no longer the foundation of our doctrine uh, in many cases, in a lot of churches. It is for our church, but in, in our country as a whole. The Bible is no longer the foundation of doctrine. Uh, the morals of our society seem to be more and more the foundational ground that people are establishing their doctrine on. Uh, what's acceptable for society? Uh, churches are uh, are introducing... Uh, women preachers and pastors into their midst because it's socially acceptable. Churches are uh, trying to uh, be open to the LBGTQ, whatever all those alphabet names are, uh, community, and to say you're welcome to come into our church and fellowship with us and continue in your sin as if there's no problem with that. Uh, and they're doing that because, again, that's what society's morals are are stating. And they're using... The, the foundation of what becomes acceptable in society as their foundation of doctrine. And that has come about because there have been men that have stood and proclaimed the truth in part and then added in their own. And Satan has used that uh, quite a bit. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, um, when he asked Eve... Uh, what would happen if she ate of the tree? And she told him. And he said, Ye shall not surely die. Uh, and she, he used some truth, but then he put his own lie into it. And uh, so they tried to elevate their teaching, uh, their mindset on things, to the same level as God's Word. Uh, the second thing that Satan does, not only does he add to truth or try to... Um, intertwine his falsehoods in with some truth. But the next thing that he does is he tries to minimize the truth of God's Word. And he has done that by confusing translations. Um, they've come out with now, I think somebody told me the other day, there's now over 7,000 translations of Scripture, something along those lines. Uh, that's a huge number. I don't, I've not verified that, but I heard that number the other day, and I thought... And then we wonder why people are confused about which one is the real Word of God. And especially when the different versions don't agree with themselves. They don't agree with each other, and people begin then to question. And God's Word is undermined, and it's eroded. Uh, and so Satan uses both of these tactics. He does so through false teachers and false prophets. Uh, it's, it's appalling to me. Uh, what I'm seeing done in the name of Christ in the day that we're living in. In our churches, what is being done in the name of preaching, in the name of evangelism, uh, it's, a, it's appalling. And there is no truth to it. There's, there's uh, a lot of things that, that take place here. When these two tactics are used, and they are used effectively, and they are used today in our, in our day that we live in, uh, they are being used rampantly just, just everywhere you look. And when they are used as effectively they are, as they are, then the world is left without a sure word of God. Everything now becomes subjective. There's no authority. There's no foundation for doctrine. 
Now every man does that which is right in their own eyes. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We can be frustrated and disappointed, I think, and we certainly ought to pray for it. But we shouldn't be surprised by it because the Bible says that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We are getting close to the end times. And the days of Noah were marked by the fact that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They were a God unto themselves. They set their own moral standard. And so when these things happen, these false teachers begin to teach things. Uh, and, and, you know, it's easy for us. The, 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 the false teachers that are easily seen are easily seen. <laughs> and we, we tend to guard against those. But there are also those that are not as easily seen. And the false teachers that are not as easily seen, I know this sounds very profound, but they're not as easily seen. And even those that are in our kind of churches that hold the truth and our heart's desire is to be true according to Scripture, can look at some of these fellows and say, boy, that's a good teacher. And I've heard sometimes people that have mentioned uh, teachers, uh, well-known teachers of Scripture, uh, or pastors, and when they say, and they say, "Boy, that's that's," I got a real blessing out of his message, and I'll cringe sometimes when I hear somebody say that because I know that there's some intentional doctrinal error that goes on in those fellows' ministries, and they are false teachers. In Second Peter chapter number one, I want us to look very quickly at a couple of things here. We're going to begin reading in verse number twelve, and we're going to read down into chapter two. Second Peter chapter one and verse number twelve. Wherefore. Uh, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. And uh, at, the, at the risk of sounding repetitive sometimes in preaching, uh, the truth is there's a lot of things that we as preachers need to continue to remind folks because we quickly forget about them or we quickly push them to the back of our lives and get distracted with the affairs of life. And I, I'm concerned. I was talking to Brother Mark last week. And uh, we were looking at some things online. I was showing him some things online that are going on in some of our churches. And I said, you know, the sad thing is, people that are in our kind of churches are not aware that this stuff's going on. Because we would come across something like that, and we wouldn't even watch it. We wouldn't even pay attention to it, because it's not what we are. And if we're not careful, uh, we will walk through this world oblivious to the needs of spiritual warfare that need to happen and some uh, folks like, like you and I that are uh, striving for doctrinal purity to stand firm and to stand fast and to boldly teach what the Bible says. Because we're living in a world where our, our doctrine, our Bible, this book, not just our doctrine, but the foundation we get our doctrine from is being eroded by, day by day. I mean, literally almost hourly. We're seeing it eroded. And this book is becoming less and less trustworthy in the eyes of the world. And somewhere along the line, we've got to dig our heels in and hold firm to the doctrine of this Word. And so it's very, very important that we understand some of these things. And and so Peter says that there's a need to remind them. And I, I I, I certainly don't want to just preach four sermons over and over and over again. But there are things that oftentimes we need to be reminded of. And so he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, 
I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And I've said this before, I don't know how much time the Lord will give me on this earth. But I would hope and I would pray that when and if the time ever comes for this church to have to call another pastor, that there will have been enough teaching of the doctrine of God's Word from this pulpit that our church would know how to call a pastor that would be right with God's Word and to teach and to lead the church uh, leaving here. And this is, this is Peter's desire. And he's writing these things because he knows his time is short. For he received, verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also, now I want you to notice this, a more sure word of prophecy. Now pay attention to what Peter has said here. He said, I am an eyewitness. I have seen the Christ. He said, not only have I seen the Christ, I have had it validated that He was the Son of God when I, with these ears, heard the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He also makes a reference here to the time on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says this, and I want you to notice this in verse number 19. We have a what? More sure word of prophecy. He's saying there is something that is more sure than even my eyewitness account and my first person hearing of it. And that is the word of prophecy that God has given. It is more sure than my own eyes and my own ears. Why? Because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He says, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And boy, are we in need of that today. You and I are to take this book and let its light shine into the darkness of this world. It is our responsibility to hold this truth. The Bible says that this church that Christ established is the pillar and the ground upon which truth rests. And the psalmist said this, If truth is fallen in the streets, what can the righteous do? Somewhere along the line, the church has got to take its proper role in uh, holding forth the Word of God, defending it, propagating it, uh, 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 doing all that we can to preserve the truth and the sanctity of it and to, uh, to be able to declare the importance of it because... According to Peter, it is a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed according uh, as unto a light that shineth in the dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And, and there, are, there are passages... Uh, Paul has some of them that he wrote where he makes mention that he said this by, uh, by uh, permission and not by command. And some people say, well, th those are Paul's words then. No, they are still inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. 
And their argument is this, well, God didn't command him to write it. No, but God gave him permission to write it, which is just as good. Uh, Because, again, God put those words in Paul's heart to write them. It is important that we understand the full sufficiency of Scripture. It is not of any private interpretation. These men did not write what they felt or what they uh, thought about their things. These were convictions that God had placed upon their hearts, these keys of the kingdom of heaven that God had promised them that He was going to give to them, to have authority to guide in these matters, to be able to write Scripture. And he says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. In other words, it wasn't man's thoughts or man's will. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people. So, understand this, and again, it oftentimes does as well to read these books without the chapter division uh, coming to mind, because we think that sometimes, and and sometimes it does, the chapter will indicate a, a closing of one thought and a starting of another. But there are times that it is a continuation, and this is one of those times. He goes by saying that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and that it was not of any private interpretation, that they did not write it of their own will, but they they wrote as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, as the Holy Spirit inspired them, and they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And notice this word, please. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They're going to say the way of truth, this book, they're going to start picking it apart. They're going to start speaking evil of it. They're going to start telling people, well, you can't trust everything in it. They're going to say, well, after all these years of translations, there are translation errors in it and it cannot be trusted. And that's one of the biggest arguments that's out there. They completely deny God's promise to preserve His Word in purity for every generation. They completely refused to believe that God not only was able to inspire, well, they may say, well, He was able to inspire, but then they limit God by saying He wasn't able to preserve it without error. If we believe God inspired this book, it is no no hard step at all to say He also preserved it without error. That every word in it is exactly what the English-speaking people are supposed to have. And it is fully sufficient I took Greek for two years, I've studied Hebrew, and I will say this. You do not have to have Greek to know God's Word from the King James Bible. You don't have to have it. These men that try to teach you things and say, well, this is what the the King James says, but you've got to go back to the Greek to really understand it, you don't. It is sufficient. It is sufficient. And then he says this, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by re- pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And so they're going to begin to undermine the Scriptures. And they're going to do it. And they're going to be sincere men. They're going to be men that mean well. And something like this may come out of their mouth. 
Well, this word would better be translated, and then they'll give you the translation. And what they're saying is, I'm wanting to teach you a truth. And the verse I'm trying to teach you the truth from doesn't quite fit my truth, so I need to make it fit. That's what they're saying. Folks, we don't come to the Bible with our own truth and try to find the Scripture to be in agreement with us. We come to the Bible with an open heart and with a mind saying, Lord, teach me your ways, and I will walk in them. Teach me thy truth, Lord. That is the desire of my heart. I love reading the Psalms. I love reading the Psalms. David so much spoke to the Lord of how much he loved and cherished the truth of God's Word. How it was his life. How literally he said, I can't even breathe. I can't even live without your Word. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them... There is great reward. Why? Because he understood something. He understood that everything he believed came from the truth of God's Word. And folks, we are living in a time where, I am sad to say, churches and men that I have looked up to over my lifetime, in the days that we're living in, have been so, so swayed in this area that they are beginning to depart from this book that they're beginning to undermine some of the things that are written in it and some of the truth that's given in it. In verse 3, he says this, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words... I looked up feigned in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. The very first part of it, that the, the, the definition is invented. Invented words. Made up. That, that they are fake. That they are counterfeit. They're not... They are not what the Bible says. And here we find the two ways that I just shared with you that Satan uses. We find them undermining the truth of God's Word in what it does say. And we find them feigning words, saying these words are the Word of God. They make them up. They invent them. And here in Second Peter chapter 2, we find both of those ways being used. They're... they're, they're uh, they're uh, speaking evil of the way of truth. And then through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now, if you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And by the way, we're still just in the introduction, so I probably will make good on my half-hour edition tonight. Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look in verse number 11. I love this because to me, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and following are, are the key verses of Scripture that I believe tell the church what God's purpose is for it in this earth. Now notice what he says here in verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. By the way, there's an awful lot that can be taught on this, and maybe one of these weeks near, in the near future I'll talk on spiritual maturity, and we'll, we'll look at Scripture on this issue. Because I am amazed that we think that just by chronological time going by, that we will mature spiritually. That is not the case. Spiritual maturity comes from growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've seen people do it in a rapid amount of time, 
And I've seen people that have been saved and in church a long period of time that have never grown. When he talks about the perfecting of the saints here, he's speaking here of the, their maturity, their growth, uh, their, their equipping. Uh, notice he says here, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is the measure and what is the mark of maturity? What is what is the measuring stick that we use to measure our spiritual maturity by? Well, he tells us here in verse 13. He says, Till we all co- we're supposed to be growing, we're supposed to be perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we're supposed to be doing this, the church is supposed to be doing this, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto... A perfect man. So we're all to strive together on this issue until all of us come unto a perfect man, not meaning without sin, but meaning fully mature, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what our, our measuring stick is? I was doing some welding Tuesday out here on, on some things, and I, I, Jonathan, I, I kept losing my tape measure. And I had to keep measuring things and, and making sure I had... I have, you, know, you know, it's amazing to me. I can even go to Harbor Freight, which has these, these poor quality tools, and I can get a tape measure, and I can go over and, and find the most expensive tape measure that somebody else has, and I can put them next to each other. You know what? Pretty much they're all going to be exactly the same. Because somewhere along the line, somebody set a standard and said, this is what we're all going to go by. There's a standard that you and I are to measure our spiritual maturity by, and notice he says here what it is. The stature... Of the fullness of Christ. You know what I'm to measure myself by? It is not somebody else that's a Christian. I'm not supposed to take my life and lay it aside of Brother Wayne's or Brother Mark's or Brother Harold's and say, well, I am spiritually mature because this is how I measure up against them. You know what our standard is? The stature of the fullness of Christ. You want something that's humbling, begin to measure yourself with our Savior. And you say, well, Pastor, I'm never going to get there. No, but that's what we're to strive for. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know what the mark was? Christ. That was what Paul strived to be like. He wanted to be like Christ. Are we going to succeed in this side of heaven? No. But it ought to be the thing that we're, we're, we're pressing in the harness for, that we're, we're giving forth the effort for, the diligence for. And so he says this, uh, for the uh, uh, till, till we all come to uh, in unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we notice this that we henceforth be no more what children. So he speaks here. He goes from spiritual maturity that we're supposed to be perfected. We're supposed to be in the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's our that's our level of spirituality we're trying to get to. And he compares that or contrasts that, if you will. With children. He says that you be no more children. When I tell my son every once in a while, he'll say, Dad, let's go do this. Isn't this fun? And I'll be like, Son, when I became a man, I put away childish things, you know, because sometimes they're childish things. But the truth is, in our Christian life, sometimes we're still children. And, and what makes the difference between the perfect Christian, not, not sinless, but the, the one that's striving and growing? 
and the nurture and the stature of God, of the fullness of God. What makes the difference between that Christian and one that is a child spiritually? What makes the difference in them is not how much chronological time has passed, but how much they have pursued knowing Christ. And so he says this. We're supposed to be doing this. This is why God gave these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, so that the saints can be perfected. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and we're to do it until we reach the goal of being just like Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, notice this, tossed to and fro by what? Every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You know what the sign of spiritual immaturity is? Not being able to discern a false teacher. We're swayed by their doctrine. We're swayed by their deceptive means, their cunning craftiness. We're, we're swayed by their, their error in doctrine, by their slight of men. And Paul, say, or, uh, Paul said, when you're like that, you're spiritual children. You haven't grown. You haven't deepened your roots. In verse 15 he says this, But... We're not supposed to be like children. We're not supposed to be swayed by every wind of doctrine. But we are, he says, but speaking the truth in love. That's what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to speak the truth. We're supposed to do it in love. And by the way, I think some Baptists could take a good, a good dose of this. We're, we're, a lot of times we're okay with speaking the truth, but we oftentimes forget the in love part. There is a right and a wrong way to teach the Scriptures. And yes, we want to be bold and we want to be steadfast. And folks, I can tell you this from experience, and I can tell you this from the Bible, that it is possible to be steadfast, to be uncompromising on the truth of God's Word, and still love people. You don't have to choose between one or the other. And we're living in a day where a lot of churches have said, or taught by example, that it's one or the other, but you can't do both. Yes, you can. Christ did. And if He can do it, so can you and I. You know why we can't do it this side of heaven right now? Because we're still children. We haven't quite reached that fullness of the stature of Christ. The more we become like Him, the more we'll be able to speak the truth in love. May grow up into Him. What does a child need to do to mature? When our kids act childish and they're teenagers or young adults, we say, you need to grow up. He says, we're not to be children anymore, but we are to speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I say all this by way of introduction, folks. I'm going to give you 25 points now. We'll go in about one per minute, and that will give us our extra half hour. I don't quite have 25, but I do have a lot of points. 
I'm going to give you some of them as a high-level overview, and then next week we're going to come back and look at some of them specific, all right? And we'll, we'll do it that way. That way we'll be out of here in a, in a decent amount of time. I want to give you some signs of false teachers and some ways that we can tell who they are and, um, and, and then look at some, some additional things, uh, what, what we can use to, to discern according to Scripture, all right? But I'm just going to give you a, a few of these rather quickly. We'll take some time to look at some more passages of Scripture next week. Number one, false teachers will always pray, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. False teachers will always pray on spiritual immaturity. They're banking on it. That's who they cater to. False teachers will always pray on spiritual immaturity. When we talk about the fact that it is important for you and I to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to read this book, to know it, to study it, to love it, to cherish it, we're doing it because we want to make sure we don't get drawn away and deceived by false teachers. Number two, false teachers are the product of distorted interpretation of Scriptures. False teachers are the product of distorted interpretation of Scriptures. There are three things that motivate or cause a false teacher to be a false teacher. One would be ungodly ambition. Some false teachers have an ungodly ambition. Their goal is to make money, to be on the New York Times bestseller, to have the next megachurch in the United States. And they have an ungodly ambition about them, and so they're going to be a false teacher to accomplish that. Another driving force that causes us to have false teachers is men that are ignorant of God's Word. I shared with you the other day, this pastor of a megachurch, it's a large church out in Oklahoma, that had what he billed as the greatest Easter service ever. And he got up and he told his people, he said, a few years ago the church called me to be the pastor. I didn't even know what a pastor did. Well, folks, I wouldn't call a novice that doesn't know the Word of God to be the next pastor. It will lead to false teaching. The other thing is, there are men that are conceited. They have big egos. There's a lot of pride about them. And they like to just have authority. They, they thrive on that. Um, there's a term and a phrase that is so often abused in our circles called pastoral authority. The idea that the pastor is above the laity that His Word is unimpeachable. It's interesting to me that I was watching a documentary the other day of a, a fellow who was converted from Catholicism that now goes around and teaches on the errors of Catholicism. And he talks about when different things that are of doctrinal error were introduced into the Roman Catholic Church. And... Uh, I'm trying to think of which one it was I had in mind for when I started to tell you about that. Um, 
they, they came out with the place at, at, at a certain point where the Pope, whatever the Pope said, was to be equal to Scripture. It was uh, infallible. The infallibility, I think that's the term I was trying to find, the infallibility of the Pope. Now, the Catholic Church holds to the fact that Peter was the first Pope. So that would mean that Peter, after Christ established him according to the Roman Catholic Church as the rock, and that's where they, they get Peter was the first Pope from, why is it that Peter was teaching that they had to be that the Gentiles had to be circumcised when they got saved, and Paul had to confront him to the face because he was wrong on the issue? Folks, men that come out here and for their conceited egos will say, I am not to be questioned on what I teach. You can mark it down and rest assured, nine times out of ten, they're a false teacher. I would say ten times out of ten, but there might be somebody that's just out there that does it because he's just ignorant of it. But they do it because of conceit. They do it because of ungodly ambition. Ignorance of Scripture and their, their conceit, their own pride, their own ego. False teachers often seek material gain. You find a preacher that goes around and he's constantly trying to get money from people. Good sign. I'm not saying all of them are, but it's a good sign that that's a false teacher. Because many of them do. And then I will say this, a lot of times false teachers are produced by other false teachers. If you see a man that was a product of a false teacher's ministry, more than likely he's going to be a false teacher also. These are just some practical guidelines. I'm going to give you one, two, three, four. I'm going to give you four examples from the Apostle Paul, and then I'm going to give you five biblical principles of how we discern how do you and I, when we see a person get up and preach the Word of God, how do we judge, how do we know from Scripture whether or not he's a false teacher? And if you want to know that, you have to come back next week for the continuation. All right? Folks, we are living in trying times. I would give these to you tonight. I hate to leave you hanging on it, but literally, I, it, it, we're another 45 minutes or better on the teaching of it to do, do it justice. And I don't want to rush through this. This is important. Very, very important, folks. I know I'm preaching to the Wednesday night crowd. And I know that out of all the folks, this is probably the least likely crowd that would be deceived by a false teacher. But it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. And the more people that we can get to know how to discern, how to know a false teacher, how to find them, how to see them, the better off we are going to be to combat doctrinal error and these false teachers. So make, make plans to come back next Wednesday. And if the rapture happens between now and next Wednesday, uh, I'll let the Lord teach the lesson and we'll just meet there at His throne and let Him, He can help us with that, all right? He would do a far better job anyway. All right, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the warnings that it gives. And Lord, I know that a lot of what was said tonight are things that we know. I mean, we know these things. We've read Scripture. 